but how lucky was I to receive that help um, from God? And I feel a real burden and responsibility. Um, some amazing people have sown into my life. Um, God has used them to sow in my life to, to do that for others. And I have tried to live a life of doing that and really like answering my call well, being well equipped, making a difference. Um, it's messy, hard, exhausting. My house is a trash right now. <laughs> and I have an 11 and a 14 year old who like one's gotta be a football game. And you know, I'm still doing in the midst of this call to ministry of all this lifetime. Um, I'm still doing mom life and everything else, struggling with my weight. I see a nutritionist right now, I gained some weight during COVID that clothes aren't, don't fit. I mean, I think it's just, I think you learn to be human and that human's okay and that God is with us and there's always hope. From Hope Made Strong, this is the Care Ministry Podcast, a show about equipping ministry leaders and transforming communities through care. Supporting those in your church and community not only changes individuals' lives, but it grows and strengthens the church. But we want to do that without burning out. So listen in as we learn about tools, strategies, and resources that will equip your team and strengthen hope. I'm Laura Howe, and on the show today, we're going to be talking with Michelle Niedert. Now, this is a different kind of episode that I'm used to having, and I am really excited to share it with you. You see, oftentimes when you're an independent counselor or you're a care director, it can feel really lonely. It's really rare to find other people like you. Someone who's passionate about serving others, supports people through life's challenges, loves Jesus, but still faces life's struggles and is open to talking about it. I have to admit, my conversation with Michelle happened several months ago, and I just wasn't sure if I was going to share it with you. Because number one, this was my first podcast episode or my first podcast interview, and I wasn't exactly organized and I was super nervous, and it's not formatted in the same way that the rest were. And number two, we don't talk about specific tools or strategies. But recently I had some time off and I re-listened to the episode and I knew that I could not share it. This was the first time I had ever spoken to Michelle and instantly I felt like she just got me. And it was a breath of fresh air to hear how she faced similar challenges and hardships and was passionate about ministry and community and was a mom just like me with kids and often had a messy house and she even shared about weight struggles just like me. I felt like she was reading my mail, and at the end, we both felt like it was a cathartic conversation. I was so blessed by chatting with Michelle, and I'm excited to share it with you. Michelle was born and went to elementary school in California, but her family moved to Texas, actually to leave a cult. In Texas, Michelle lived in the very same house that her dad grew up in and attended an evangelical church. As a gifted kid, she was busy with activities, programs, groups, and volunteer work. But as early as high school, she was considering a career in counseling. Eventually, Michelle graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary and Baylor University and has worked alongside of Louis Giglio with Life Outreach International and eventually as a staff in church. Unfortunately, her time working in a church abruptly ended when she found herself in the middle of a church split and power struggle. Michelle suddenly lost her job and was forced to work in the school system. While at first she may have been resentful, Michelle shares about how the power of God moved through her life and how each step was used to grow and strengthen her. 
Michelle is now an author, speaker, clinical director, and founder of a counseling practice called Community Counseling Associates and is located in Texas. The cool thing about Michelle's story, and one of the big reasons why I wanted to share it with you, is that I think we can all relate to her journey. Sometimes we find ourselves in positions, jobs, circumstances, relationships, and challenges that seem frustrating or even restrictive. In the moment, it's hard to see how God is going to use these times to strengthen and grow us because it just feels really uncomfortable. But I hope that as you listen to Michelle's story, you hear your story as she shares about her mentors, lessons learned, and hardships she has overcome, and how God has been faithful through it all. I hope that you are encouraged just as I was. We're going to jump into Michelle's story just when she is talking about the mentor that she considers to be one of the most influential in her life. So this man I met, his name was Reggie McNeil, and he really was the first man in my life who ever was like a hundred percent my cheerleader. I think my mm-hmm. dad, my dad was kind of the more that the traditional view, like I have a personality more like my dad's. My mom's very submissive and quiet. And here he's got this daughter, you know, full on. <laughs> and so, um, but Reggie was like, you're going to be an amazing asset to the kingdom of God. I can't mm-hmm. wait to see. I mean, he would, he, he brought the, um, the then president of Southwestern seminary, like, they, they all went out to dinner, a bunch of them together. Um, and he brought him home for dessert and I disappeared. And he's like, I brought him home to meet you. Like you're going to be a woman someday who impacts this world. And I want him to know your name before you ever show up on his campus. And so he was just a huge, and he still to this day, like a book come out or something. And Reggie will text me and just say, he still calls me kiddo. Sometimes it's kind of funny because I'm 50, but he'll say, I'm so proud of you, kiddo you know, and stuff like that. He's like, you have made a difference in the kingdom. Like I knew you would, you have been faithful to your call. And so a huge impact in my life. Um, in fact, really like, as I wrote this book, loved and cherished for girls, this devotional, he is the one who introduced me to the father heart of God for sure. And being his on-call babysitter, they paid me to, like he had a standing date with his wife every week and they paid me to, um, babysit the girls. And I got to see even a different view of like what a real faith-filled family did like every night, like discipling kids. And that really stuck with me. And then in college, um, I was very fortunate to be at Baylor when Louis Giglio was there with Choice Ministries. And I actually went to England um, for a summer through Louis' ministry and worked in the Choice offices back in the day. So Louis had a huge impact on my life. Um, I think just getting to watch somebody who's an introvert in ministry, because I'd never seen anything like that before. And then <laughs> uh, he would say to me, you know, Michelle, do not make eye contact with anybody. I'm like done talking to people. <laughs> it would just be so funny because I, I do that. I make friends wherever I go. And like, if you're a speaker and you're done talking, like they'll recognize him and it's all over for him, you know? So, right. um, but it was such a great experience for me at the time that I was there with him. He was going through the book, The Search for Significance by Robert McGee, which is all about an identity in Christ. Mm-hmm. And I'm very fortunate to have locked that down at like 19 years old, you know. Wow. Um, and so from there, I had part of my full ride at Baylor was a teaching. Um, and at the time, I was so angry about it. Because I thought if I was a man, they would have been great with me being a religion and psych major. But because I was a woman, they thought you know, you won't be able to support yourself. And, you know, if you don't marry right away, like, you know, they they assume the ministers are going to marry and their wives are going to put them through seminary. That was just the way it was back in the nineties, eighties and nineties at Baylor. 
And I was like, no, I want to be the minister. And that was kind of hard. I was one of the only women in Greek, you know, and everybody assumed I was going to marry one of those guys. And I was like, no, if I marry them, I have to support them. And I don't become the minister. Like that's not going to work <laughs> for what I want. <laughs> and um, so, and they were funny and they would always say like, I should get the job. And they're like, why? And they're like, cause I'm the guy. And I'm like, but I make better grades than you. And mm-hmm. I know more about the Bible. than They're like, you do, you do. And they're like, and you're a better speaker than I am by far, but that's not how it works in it here. You know, and it would just be so frustrating, but it was reality. It was reality. And we would laugh, joke about it. And I would kind of cry about it probably a little bit too. In the, in the <laughs> So I started teaching um, to pay off the scholarship. And then I had a woman discipling me. I was real involved at the singles ministry at Prestonwood. And I was on the women's council there. And I told, she said, why are you not, in, why are you not in seminary? Why are you not pursuing this counseling call? Cause so I worked on church staff one summer for Reggie. Reggie brought me in. And what I did was I had been a youth and children's minister already for a while while I was Baylor. And then I subbed every church staff position. He wanted me to just try them all on kind of, which is a great gift, you know? So each staff had a vacation that summer and I did their job kind of, I didn't really lead worship because that would have been painful for people. But other than that, (laughs) but I did like handle a lot of the dynamics of that just to see what that was like. And when it was done, I was like, I, we have a problem. And he's like, oh, I know we do. He said, I've talked to the staff, you know, and so, and I'm like, the, he said, first of all, I think Louise ruined you because you don't like church is a business and it works like this. And I don't know if you're going to be able to work for a church because you've been a part of a parachurch ministry that works very different, hmm. but I love the way that ministry worked. Um, and then, uh, the other thing he, I, he and I both agreed is the only job that I was fit for was his and in a Baptist church that the odds weren't good at that. So then it was kind of a real quandary. What do we do with that? So um, at that point, um, I went on to, like I said, on to, you know, finish Baylor. Um, I was almost done with Baylor at that point. And then I taught and I taught in like a dangerous liaison. I don't know, dangerous liaisons kind of school, like inner skitty, like there were gates. They would like drop them down, gang fights. I was like sexually assaulted by, not sexually assaulted badly by a gang leader, but he stuck his hand up my skirt. I mean, it was like crazy. They had to have escorts me to to and from the car because he threatened me when charges were pressed at first. I mean, I had a lot of interesting experiences there. Wow, yeah. And, And I loved it. I had fallen in love with the inner city when I, Louis had sent me to England. And I fell in love with the inner city. I wanted to stay in London, but my dad's like, I said, I think God is calling me here. And he, and my dad's like, you have a full ride at Baylor. You get your booty back to the United States and (laughs) you can go right back when you, your degree is in your hand if you want to, but God, until that's done, no, you're coming back home. And so I I literally bought my plane ticket, like the week after school started, he was like adamant you're coming home. Cause I really felt called to stay. And it's hard when you see a need and you're passionate about that, you know, but I've learned a lot about the fact that even Jesus didn't meet every need here on earth. When you see a need and you passionately feel it, but you have to step away. What did that, what did, how did that feel? What did you learn in that moment? I learned to let go of things. And, and, and you have to do that as a therapist. We'll get there down the road, I guess. But yeah, you have to do that as a therapist. And that was that I learned that in discipleship with a woman um, at Baylor named Gail Perry, who was a counselor and the Dean of Students. I think it was her role, residence life. And Gail um, would did really interesting work with me. So she counseled me, but she taught me how to be a counselor while she was counseling me. So we spent two hours. The first hour was my counseling session. And the second hour was why we were doing what we were doing. 
I love that because so many great counselors are great counselors because they have a counselor. They're able to process their stuff, their own stuff, while learning skills and mentorship and and, and improving their own skills. So good. Yeah. I've had a counselor or a life coach pretty much most of my life or somebody discipling me. And that's what I found out in the church. What I really wanted to do was discipleship, but they don't pay for that. They want you to run events and programs and they want you to equip other people to do the discipleship. And I'm like, where can I get paid to disciple? (laughs) And counseling was the best thing I could find where I could be one-on-one with a kid or a teen or an adult and help them work on personal growth and life change and spiritual um, depth. So Christian counseling just was a perfect fit for me. And so it's kind of funny though, because I have a lot of words, but I can listen. My staff laugh because this personality is not who you meet in the office. I mean, you meet a little energy and a little hope, but I have a much softer side that shows up there and they're always shocked by it when they see it. Cause I run a counseling center with like 15 counselors. And so I'm the boss, you know, when I'm in front of them and they're like, have you ever seen Michelle counsel? She's like the most nurturing, warm person. I'm like, (laughs) how did you learn that Michelle? How did you learn how to do that? Because I myself am an extroverted person who has lots of words and has lots of ideas and opinions, but you, but you have to switch that off or, or change the channel a little bit or turn down the volume when you're counseling. So how did you learn that to do that? You know, I think I've always had some of that in me. Um, I think listening to kids when I was a children's minister and a youth minister, I think a lot of training. So in Disciple Now, as you do this thing called the one-on-one with the kids, And so I think that trained me a lot, those disciple now one-on-ones. And then when I worked at Pine Cove sports camp for a year and we had to do one-on-ones with every one of our campers and they taught us a formula for that. And I think that was really good counseling training, to be honest, Mm. that that work I did there as well. And I took that very seriously. I mean, they, they laughed. I just bawled when, I mean, I overattached to the kids and then I grieved the loss of them when they left every week. They're like, you're going to die by the end of this. And (laughs) I didn't. And the kids, I mean, I still have a relationship. One of my, one of the kids that like literally at Pine Cove, like th- what, 30 years ago now uh, is my Facebook friend. She found me after all these years wow. and stuff. So yeah. Yeah. My name was Pen Pal and she laughs. She's like, I'm friends with Pen Pal on Facebook. So, um, so anyway, I, I think that's part of learning it. And then I think um, definitely my counselor training really prepared me well for that. So I started at Dallas Seminary and I was teaching um, as a TA at Criswell Bible College. And then I realized how long it was going to take me and how expensive it was. And then I was repeating a lot of my same religion and theology classes that I had taken at Baylor. So I had really good advice. I felt like from another counselor who said, get this done as cheap and fast as possible and find amazing mentors. Mm -hmm. Because what you're going to learn in school is for a state test. And the other things are what will make a difference. And so I transferred to another school and they had a lot of focus. They let me develop. It was really great because they were into like uh, more like person-centered therapy and reflective listening, which is non-directive. And I don't recommend you get a therapist who just does that. But at the same time, that's good training for somebody like me, who's naturally directive, right? To learn those skills, have to practice them over and over again. Karkoff was like the book I lived out of. Mm -hmm. But also what was cool about it is because they were so person-centered, they were person-centered in how you developed your theoretical approach to counseling. So I was allowed to really work on a biblical integrative model of counseling all the way through. And during that time, I was really involved with Exchange Life Ministries. Um, Jeff Van Vonderen, who's actually on the TV show Intervention, was really involved in the leadership of that back then. Um, So um, he wrote a book called Tired of Trying to Measure Up, which is just a further reinforcement and families where grace is in place. 
really heavy grace-based um, work, but also from a psychological perspective, he's an addiction specialist. So kind of learning those family dynamics of the hero and all those different mm-hmm. roles as well too. So anyway, I think that kind of catches us up to me going to work for a church and a counseling center at the same time. And then that church launched a baby church. And then the quick story of this is, and I have a post on a friend's blog about when church hurts, uh, the church split and it was ugly mm-hmm. and I lost my job. And I was kind of used as a pawn in between two men who were both trying to take control of an organization and basically told I either betrayed one or I was fired. And I, I, the, the, the information wasn't accurate about the one that I would be betraying. And then I changed the voicemail to our counseling center. I didn't know they'd merged all the lines. And so when I did that, um, they thought I had done it on purpose to cause problems and they evicted my counseling. I had a counseling center at the time. I was the director of eight counselors and they evicted us all within 24 hours. So a lot of, a lot of pain, a lot of damage, a lot of trauma. I tried to get another church job and I couldn't do it. Um, I just, couldn't trust. I'd go into these interviews and I think I don't trust these people. Like mm. I do not, they can say <laughs> this all they want, but I know there are other motives behind this stuff and I, I just can do it. And I remember I was, I was in the most amazing place doing an interview. Can you imagine being in Marina Del Rey, like in North California on Pebble beach, um, right by the golf course. And I'm crying my eyes out going, God, I don't think I can do this. Um, but I still felt this desire to answer his call. And so I ended up going back to work for the school as a school counselor and loved it. There was a school that hired me specifically because most school counselors are not equipped. They had a kid that hung on themselves and lived three days and then died. And those kids were coming back. And so I became involved in the movement of where now there are that there were not very many at the time. Now there are more on the campuses because we've had so much teen suicide and stuff. Um, I became, um, a crisis counselor. And I actually developed, I was hired out by another school district when I got married to develop a crisis counseling program for it. And I still consult with districts um, around the area about like, what, what, what are the facets of a crisis counseling program? What does it need? How do crisis counselors reach kids well? How do they function within the culture and the systems of education and things like that? So I left that job when I had my first child and somehow a counseling center got formed again underneath me. Some of the school counselors (laughs) wanted to work for me. They wanted to get their licenses. And so uh, they were, they like, literally they filled out my paperwork. The school paid for my training because I was using interns in the school as well. And um, multiplying myself kind of through that. In fact, they, they literally replaced me with three people. When I left, they laughed. They were like, we knew it was going to be bad. We didn't think it'd be this bad. (laughs) Um, within five years, they replaced me with three people. It just kind of slowly grew and stuff like that. So, um, and so I've been running the counseling center for a long time, speaking in locally a lot because my kids were young and doing very little traveling before that I had spoken. I didn't really talk about this. So during the time I was in out, maybe out of seminary in my counseling training, um, the church I was at had a partnership with John Townsend and Henry Cloud. Um, their ministry. Uh, and so we were like piloting small groups for them and things like that. It's funny. I'm going to interview John later today and I'm so excited to see him. I haven't seen him in like 20 years. So this is kind of like a really, they boundaries had just come out. Like it was the only, but it was no, a couple other books were out because about the time that was all happening, they were going to launch boundaries and dating. And these were two married guys, you know, older, And here I was this young, blonde, 25 year old female. So I began to use their curriculum a lot and speak all over the country on boundaries for women. 
and boundaries for dating, usually when they couldn't afford them <laughs> or, <laughs> or um, it didn't fit, you know, like John's like me talking about boundaries and dating isn't as it's not the same, like equally yokes would rather have me come in. That was like back in the old days. Nobody, I don't know if people realize this, but before there was like match.com, you had these local dating Christian dating organizations where they had activities and they had books you looked through and you picked out and you left a voicemail for somebody you might want to meet. Yeah. So I, I literally like would speak for equally yoked on boundaries and dating. And I did like these huge single seminars and stuff like that. And just kind of talked about the principles that they taught in the book, totally giving them credit. I was, I'm going to tell John today, I never ripped y'all off. Uh, but anyway, but I, but in that, when you teach something like that all the time, you know, you it really become the master of that material. And I had spent time with them in both Dallas, Henry with in Dallas um, at the Heights with different projects that we did. He would come in to speak sometimes. And then with uh, John in, in California. In fact, I was at a real cross point before the church split. I had considered going to, I had talked to one of their people. They were like, that Henry had talked to me and just kind of mentioned it, that they would have left for me to work for New Life and move to California. It's very expensive to live in California as a single woman. So that, that didn't seem to make a lot of sense, but it's interesting because they've had a huge impact on my counseling approach for sure. So yeah, so now I have a counseling center and I have felt the call for a long time to write and speak. I didn't want to do it too young. I, so this has changed in the culture. So when I was 25, I was the youngest person who ever went to a writer's conference. And I was told you don't publish till you're 40. Like they won't even take you till then. They are looking for maturity. They're looking for experience. They're looking for wisdom. But I started contributing to books and things like that. And, and it was funny because then during that gap time, I had my kids and then and I really felt the call to do it, but I didn't want to because my kids were little. But my sister, Melissa Spolstra, who is about to release her next Bible study with Lifeway called on Isaiah, was publishing Bible studies and had done a, an offshoot trade book because she'd written these articles like she and I both had written for Lifeway Parenting. And they were taking some of hers and putting them together in a book called Total Family Makeover. And somebody was like, you could ride your sister's tail rings. And I'm like, my younger sister's tail wings? Why would I do that? You know? It was funny. But then I told them what I wanted to do. I wanted to, I wanted to get outside the walls of the offices and equip the church to deal with the struggles these kids are having with mental health and equip parents to help with that. And man, everybody was interested in that. So at that point I had an agent and I guess in a way the rest is history. I have a book coming out in the spring, a book coming out next fall. Maybe we're working on that timeline and then two children's picture books, a permanent series coming out with, and these are all with co-authors in 2023. So I'm busy for sure. That's amazing. So it sounds like obviously there was a, you told your story in the wave of the the challenges that you faced. How do you think those challenges contributed to what you have now? Like what resilience did you grow from all of that? You know, I've been thinking a lot about that because I've been, I told you I've um, carried Newhoff. I was, I'm listened to, didn't see him, didn't see it coming this month. And he talks about the burnout for ministry. And I, I think I got pretty close to there after the book launch. Um, it, a book launch is just an exhausting experience. It's awesome and exhausting all at the same time. Um, and then now I'm listening to Andy Culver's um, Try Softer. And she talks a lot about like managing our pain. And I, I, 
I didn't even share all the stories. There was a really painful experience when my parents left the church to go to the other church in my hometown. That did not go well with that other pastor. He and my because half the the board my dad ended up taking with him to the new church, and so, and I became a target kind of of what my dad left behind. Uh, he was pretty angry, and I was the person to shoot at since I was still there. So, I think all of it has taught me great things that. God is my father. Like I don't idolize any man. And I learned to depend on him at a very young age for my sense of love, confidence, identity, that life is very messy and that we, we can't ignore our pain. We have to feel it, leak it all out, emote it, talk it all out. Um, but there's healing on the other side, you know, that, that, and, and that people, the the church is not God. It's full of humans that hurt us. I learned that really young, which was probably good. I got to learn it twice, which I don't know why I had to learn it twice. It was kind of hard, but I'm glad I'm over that. Hopefully no more organizational stuff like that again. Um, and then I think even like my childhood pain that I did experience, my, my dad had a really bad temper. And even though he was a godly man, I, I think, honestly, I don't know if I should say this, but I'm starting to say these things. He's older and he's like, it's okay. Like, mm -hmm. I truly think he had unmedicated ADHD. And so he impulsively, like, he would get so angry, things would come out of his mouth, he didn't remember him. His brain was so hyper aroused. And he said some really hurtful things that I had to undo the damage of when I was in college. But how lucky was I? to receive that help, um, from God. And I feel a real burden and responsibility. Um, some amazing people have sown into my life. Um, God has used them to sow in my life to, to do that for others. And I have tried to live a life of doing that and really like answering my call. Well, being well-equipped, making a difference. Um, it's messy, hard, exhausting. My house is a trash right now. <laughs> and I have an 11 and a 14 year old who like one's got to be a football game. And, you know, I'm still doing in the midst of this call to ministry of all this lifetime. Um, I'm still doing mom life and everything else struggling with my weight. I see a nutritionist right now. I gained some weight during COVID that clothes aren't, don't fit. I mean, I think it's just I think you learn to be human and that humans okay. And that God is with us and there's always hope. And I think you then get to walk beside others and help them find that strength and that truth and hope and stuff. It's, I get really emotional when I talk about this stuff because it is just, it's amazing what goes on in the counseling office. People ask me like, how long will I keep counseling? Like I'm going to become this speaker and author and quit. And I'm like, uh, until God forces me to, because Sitting beside people in their pain is the greatest privilege. I think um, it's the hardest, least pay, like poor paying, <laughs> tough privilege that um, anybody can experience. And I tell my staff that like, this is, this is work you don't do. If you're not called to it, it'll kill you. <laughs> um, but if you're called to it, it'll be the hardest, most rewarding thing. You know, I'm 20, over 20 years in, two decades into this that you will ever do in your life. And um, I, I mean, I had amazing family sessions on Wednesday night, you know, and, um, helping this girl, like she, she literally said to me, why can't my dad be a dad? And I'm like, and he's sitting there beside her. He doesn't know how he's telling you that, you know, and then we're working through that grief because she's almost too old. She's he's going to be an adult father. Like she's an older adolescent. So I'm like, I can't even get him there by the time you're an adult is what I told her. 
you know, and he's like, she can't, I'm not, I mean, I don't have that. I, I don't, I wasn't raised that way. I don't have that capacity. I don't have that background. Um, cause it's a different culture. They're coming from a different culture. And, um, that culture of fathers don't do what American fathers do these mm-hmm. days. So, but it is the most, I mean, I don't know how to explain it. Like I had adults who sat with me through my pain and helped me through it. Um, and they were, they were the church. I am truly a child. My parents left to go to the mission field. Like when I was a freshman in college, um, I am truly a product of, of being raised partly by my parents and partly by the kingdom of God. And I am so grateful for that. And I see my children benefiting from it too. It's people don't have a hard time understanding the heart of a caregiver that when we sit beside those who are suffering, being able to endure the pain and the cost of that caring while being so incredibly fulfilled and spurred on and energized by it at the same time. It's a very different, odd dynamic. While all of that spinning in a circle, you also have this overarching realization of aha moments of you personally when you just when you were talking about that family on Wednesday saying he can't be a dad flashback to the story that you told us about your dad you know you're when when we sit with other people we have these internal and personal aha moments and realizations and healing that happens to us personally so there's like these three balls in the air that are happening all at the same time I know. And you know what's so interesting? Andy, I think, does a great job of this in Trisofter. Um, she figured this out. And I think I have to, I have been figuring this out, but I don't think I had the words to put to it the way she did. Um, it impacts your, you know, the impact on you. Like, you know, you can feel it. I'm leaking tears as we're talking. Your audience can't see it. But um, I'm a great leaker, by the way. I can also bring down an entire congregation and have them leak minutes. They used to put Kleenex in the pews when I was up on a rotation. Um, so at, at one of the churches that I worked at. So, um, but, um, in fact, one time they were doing it for a mops group and I'm like, I'm not talking about that topic. You're off the hook. Like, you know, <laughs> I'm on a different topic. She had heard me speak on suffering and a story, another story of my, my husband's sister and her husband died of cancer, leaving behind three kids. And she had heard me talk at a mops group about finding hope in the midst of just devastating suffering. And um, I was talking about intentional summers discipleship with your kids at the next one. And so I was like, you don't need the Kleenex. But um, but you're right. There is an irony to what we do that is like the hardest and the best thing side by side. And I tell my staff that. Like I try to really inspire them in that um, because they'll need it or they'll quit. And I, I, will, I will say like one in every 10 therapists I train quits. And, um, it's hard, hard work. And my numbers are good. That's not our national average is way higher than that. The pay is bad and the work is hard. Um, so in, at least in the States, we're like the number Forbes, number one, lowest paid career in healthcare. And we have some of the highest stress levels. So, um, but I wouldn't change it for anything, but, but I am learning that like with my weight issues that I've had recently, since I had the kids that, ignoring your body for decades. <laughs> and I learned this kind of in college. Like I learned when I was working with Louie, like I can't sleep for four hours a night and get away with it forever. You know, like I can't be like, but I've, like there's no such thing as a part-time ministry job. So I can't be like almost a full-time youth and children's minister, pull, pull a 4 in college, volunteer for a parachurch ministry. Like there's a point where that all kind of starts to come crashing down and it comes out of your sleep. And then at some point that's not 
good for you. So I learned that in college, but I think, um, like I'm working with the nutritionist because I don't honor food with my body at all. Like I eat, I eat during sessions. If I ran over and the next client wants to come in, you know, I don't want to make them wait. So if they're okay with me shoveling food down my mouth, I'll do it during a session. And, or my staff will want to grab me during my lunch, you know, and stuff like that. So I just have learned to not listen to my body. And I had a coach ask me like, how many sessions can you do in a day and not want to eat the house? <laughs> like that was a hard thing to figure out. Like I was doing, I had to cut my session numbers back because my kids were little and they were in preschool two days a week. And then I had some help come in and help me. And so what I decided to do was work like these two 10 hour days. And then I could be home with my kids the rest of the time. And I was doing like back to back, not even taking a 15 minute break in between sessions. And so over time that wore me out, you know? And so now I'm learning to honor the work I do and to take better care of my health for the most part. It's still hard. Like I, today is going to be a great example. Like we got started late and I've got another interview and then I've got something else right behind it. So I'm trying my best to set aside time, not to shovel food in and to eat a meal and to honor nutrition and even honor my body in that and be mindful and all the things we learned. I'm an eating disorder specialist, so I've known all this for years, right? But it's um, so hard to apply to ourselves, though. We know yeah. it, but it's like, oh, for my life. Okay, now this is really hard. <laughs> Not only that, but I think gifted kids like to take shortcuts because we can get away with it for a long time. We can take shortcuts on studying, you know, and we still make a great grade on the test. And I think I kind of learned that and I'm having to learn the character of doing it right, even though it's doing it slower, especially for ADHD. We like to really take shortcuts too. And I have seen, um, Daniel Amen was on my podcast recently and I have a relation, I've had a relationship with his, um, um, organization for 20 years. I was one of his first trained brain health coaches and, um, yeah, I had scans done. He offers them in our area and he offers them at a discount to mental health professionals. And I really learned, I, if you look at my brain scans, I have an ADHD brain. So yeah. I, that's fascinating. When I when I learned and read more about his stuff, I was like, oh, I wish he could scan my brain. I've always wondered. <laughs> I know. I'm telling you. So I'm 50. So I saw him on PBS in the 90s when I was just getting trained as a therapist. So for me to get to talk to him on a podcast and then to get my brain scanned at his clinic was like a fangirl moment. <laughs> It's a bucket list. It is really some of these things. I'm very grateful to God. I jokingly told one of my co-authors and she's like, I will kill you. I told her like some of these things that are happening, like I could die next year and feel like I have lived a very full, amazing life, but I have children. I'm not planning on dying. And she's like, we have contracts. You better not. You know, (laughs) She's so funny. She's like, you are not finished child. I know sometimes you wish you were, because this is hard. People want the work, this work, but it is it is hard work. It is emotional work. It is like you kind of said about, you said something earlier and I kind of shouldn't have, but I probably, I corrected you because I'm so used to working with young therapists. Um, you know, it, it is work where we feel like we're selfish. If we do what we should do to take care of ourselves and our businesses and our families, I just saw this, I was in a Facebook group, a therapist. And one of them said, why do we charge these exorbitant fees? And I'm like, these fees haven't changed in 20 years, but everything else in my life has gone up by 50%. My, my family's expenses are 50% higher. This business that I, I know the actual numbers. I have an accountant. I run profit and loss statements. They're 50% higher. The fees haven't changed and some payers are bringing them down. 
we're, we're the lowest a speech therapist in this area makes double what I make. A physical therapist makes triple to four times what I make. And I have the same healthcare cost. I pay the same price for my software and my office and my staff. And so I short myself there. They have these staff that take care of them. We can't afford that. And so we are a profession that has been okay with not taking care of ourselves and not making what we need to make. And then I feel bad because when I do charge that amount, that's a car payment for a family and who can afford that to get their kid help. It's, it's a really tough situation that we're dealing with in our country. And that's where I think what you're talking about, Laura, is so important. We need the church. We don't need the church to pretend to be untrained therapists. I am a big non-fan of that, even though I do believe in quality lay counseling training, but we need the church to walk in community besides people and help them while they heal. And that's why I have a great partnership with hope for the heart and the international Christian coaching Institute, because they like, if you go, like, if you go to, Oh, I'm trying to remember, um, I'll give you the link, but if you put it in the notes, I have a discount code, even where you can get quality lay counseling training, not to become somebody's therapist, Mm -hmm. but to become somebody's listener and supporter. And we need the church to be that not in place of therapy, but often in addition to therapy or as an adjunct where they work with me every other week. And then they have this other support from the church that can handle the less intense, like medical coordination and and severe Mm -hmm. trauma and things like that. And so I've been training Stevens minister since I was a young therapist. I totally believe in the lay work of the church and Mm -hmm. we are more desperate than we've ever been. But the reality is the American church, at least I don't know, it's like in Canada, (laughs) their members are more busy than they've ever been. Yes. And they are, and they do less Mm one-on-one. I mean, we're lucky to get them in a small group and it's more big events. And so the thing that we need, that mentorship, that discipleship, that adult, I I am that person who does that in a kid's life. Uh, Just, it's kind of sad in a way. I think what I would rather see is me equip parents to be able to be that compass in their kid's life. But in order for that, and John and I are going to talk about the state, the parent has to become emotionally healthy and mature. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. And some people want to do that work and some would rather outsource it. Mm-hmm. And then I'm okay with that. If you don't want to do the work, outsource it to me and I'll take your kid on. Yeah. So let's jump into what you are doing. We've talked a lot about you, ministry, caregiving, all those awesome things. Let's jump into what you're doing. What tell us about how you impact the church and support the church in supporting kids. Gosh, that is such a huge question these days. Um, in the past, it has been, I am, I believe if you are a counselor in a community, you are part of the community of which you counsel. So I have great relationships with almost all of our local churches. People always ask you, how do you build? I mean, I have a counseling center that I could grow as big as I want. I actually shrunk it. I had three locations, 26 staff, and they were all growing again. And I was like, I don't want to run this. This is not what I feel called to do. And so I did a very rare thing. I actually pulled locations out, pulled staff back in, some staff left. I didn't replace them and shrunk it down. But when you are in community, you serve the school well, you serve the local church well, you come in and speak, you, you, you slide that fee and find that practicum student who's in training, even though I don't love training practicum students always, because it's hard. They are fresh and green, but that's a chance for somebody to access low-cost counseling with somebody like me watching over it. And who's got a lot of experience. So I do that because of that. Um, So I run a counseling center and we're doing that. 
there, there are two locations and there are nine offices and there's a, I don't know. I, I never can know the exact count of the staff unless I go look on the website, but there's generally somewhere between 12 to 15 during COVID. We kind of like our numbers look weird because of telehealth. I don't know. And then, um, I do travel nationally and speak to Christian schools. I speak to public schools because I can keep Jesus out and keep the principals in, um, do parent trainings, um, do suicide prevention in like public school um, assemblies, chapels, things like that. Speak to women's ministry a lot. My next book coming out is called Make Up Your Mind. And it's for women about overcoming negative emotions with a Christian mindset using scripture. Uh, it's co-written with Denise Pass, who is a Bible study scholar. She's she's working on her PhD. She is just so deep. She's, she's kind of deep and I'm kind of like practical is what we kind of laugh about. Um, and so I have a counselor's corner in each chapter of that book. And it's like overcoming the depressive mindset, the anxious mindset, the victim mindset, just different mindsets that you experience. So these would be, this is like a, a resource or a tool yeah. that, that care pastors or pastors can yes. use when with their work with their people. Yes, that. And not only that, but somebody could pick it up and use one chapter, one year and month of their life and another chapter, another year and month of Fantastic. life. Love that was kind of our goal in creating that was that tool. And that's why I was so interested in joining her on that. I have a book already out for girls called Loved and Cherished. And somebody's like, why would a counselor write a devotional for girls? Because tween girls don't read nonfiction. They're not going to read a how to have a self-confidence or how to have an identity in Christ. Their parents will buy that book. I bought that book for my daughter. It just sits on the shelf, but they will read 300 words, which takes less than three minutes a day where they can learn to connect with God, begin to embrace a different mindset, which is that cognitive behavioral therapy piece. And then I've got a, Lynn and I both worked really hard to put a practical tool in there. Like, you know, one day you might carry around an object that just reminds you God's always with you. Simple things like a worry box. We use the worry box in the therapy office. Mm -hmm. And that's a freebie that I offer on my website, yourmentalhealthcoach.com. You can actually learn how to make a worry box with your kids and do that kind of thing. And we did it with the girls in the Loved and Cherished online camp. It was so much fun. So I've got that devotional for girls. And then I have another co-author that Lynn and I have another devotional coming out for kids. I, I don't know if I'm allowed to say the title yet, but like, it's going to be about managing your emotions. I'm super excited about it. It's going to cover the four basic emotions in a devotional for kids. And it's hopefully going to come out sometime around the fall of next year. And then in 2023, Tama Fortner, who's an amazing children's book author. In fact, she co-authored with Louis Giglio. That's kind of how I learned her name. And then we ended up connecting. Um, she and I have a picture book series coming up for parents to read with their kids called God, I feel like God, I feel sad. God, I feel scared. And it's introducing the emotions, helping parents learn how to not just like Jesus up the emotions and move past the emotions, yeah. but not over sit with their kids in the emotions too. But like finding that balance of helping kids identify emotions, process through emotions, compassionately manage their emotions with the word of God a little bit. There's a little bit of that sprinkled in, but mainly just that introductory concept that then managing your emotion. Well, I, I think it's going to be called managing your emojis. I think I can say that. Isn't that so cute? Fun. So fun. I know. I'm so excited. There's some talk about, will it last? Will it be evergreen enough? But I'm hopeful. And I, maybe this will be good. You see your, everybody reacts that way. So maybe my publisher will be like, yes. Uh, <laughs> but because um, the kids like that idea. Although my son, the therapist kid likes, let your feelings flow. <laughs> Oh my goodness. <laughs> but I don't think the average kid would think that was fun. No. So um, yeah, only a therapist kid would think that's a good idea. But um, um, yeah, so managing your emojis will be the follow-up to the God I Feel series to kind of take them to the next step. 
I think that's fantastic because so many adults that I connect with, and I'm sure our listeners connect with, are real. You know, we see that there's only these, what, five major emotions, hungry, like happy, sad, um, embarrassed, that they're even able to identify. So learning that emotional regulation and being able to identify emotions is absolutely huge. It's transformative for people. Well, and people keep asking me when the other book is going to come out. It's it's tentatively titled Uncomfortable Conversations, How to Talk to Your Kids About Mental Health Before They Encounter It in the Culture. Um, right now, the, the book is on the podcast, the Raising Mentally Healthy Kids podcast. I just mm-hmm. am not, the book would require things of me as a mom I'm not ready to let go of. Mm-hmm. So I think I'm pretty committed to waiting unless God changes my mind to when my kids are a little older for that book, um, where they're on their own a little bit more. So I can do the... I only travel nationally about once a month. So that book would really need me to be able to travel more. And I'm not willing to, I only get one chance to be a mom. I can do that for the rest of my life. So, and I love being a mom um, to my kids. And cause, and I think that if we're going to teach, you know, I don't, do you find that to be the hardest thing? I think I can teach emotional self-regulation with your kids in the counseling office. I can do it amazingly well. And then at home, I'm the mom who's taking the most timeouts in preschool, you know? Yes, 100%. (laughs) It's really, really funny, but it's really, really fun because it gives you a whole new level of compassion Mm -hmm. for parents and kids and families and their struggles in the house. Um, Cause you're living it too. And that's why I tell parents I'm in the trenches with you. I get this. Like I, you know, my daughter has friends who are considering transgendering, like everything that you're dealing with, I'm dealing with too. Um, and so it's interesting to be there with them and still at the same time, like have this role where I know it, I do know what to do. I can't always do it. Oh, and so there good. is no perfection in it anyway, you know, mm-hmm. like, and honestly, we don't want that. Then we're the kids idols. They won't turn to God if we're not kind of the messy parent. So I'm okay with being the messy parent because actually my daughter's 14 and God has really become her parent in a lot of ways. And it's, it's kind of sad. Cause I'm like, I miss my role in that, but I'm also so grateful that she is already learned a secure walk with God. And like, when I try to get her to look at some of these books about kids and their problems, she's like, mom, I don't have any of those. You know? <laughs> I'm not, I mean, she has the normal ones, the insecurity, you know, the struggle with the world and, and, and a walk with God, holiness, like, you know, but she was so funny. She's talking to me one day and she's like, I just, I feel like I lost my testimony during that time. And we talked about, it was during my book launch and it was a huge drama in our family. I'm like, honey, if that six weeks of your life is your whole testimony, you've done amazing. Like, you know, like, (laughs) just be careful. You don't hit pride because that's going to, that's a big struggle with some leadership Christian kids and stuff like that too. So I, I don't know. I, I love it. I don't always know what's next and I'm okay with that too. You know, it's kind of the next right thing and trusting God to open the doors. And sometimes I get people in my ear that are like, you have to do this. And if you did this, your numbers would, and I'm just, I don't know. I, I, I like, I can get sucked into that because I'm an Enneagram two with a three wing and I like to do things well. And I love to, you know, like the books, won awards and um, loved and cherishes one awards and it's been fun. But at the end of the day, the real reward is the mom who emails me and says, Hey, my daughter, prayed to receive Christ tonight after reading the devotional with you, like her life's going to be different forever. She's going to have security and love beyond something that I could even give her as a mental health professional. So it's super exciting. Awesome. So for those who are listening with being in that role as a pastor or a care pastor, how can they engage? Like, how can they connect with you, your, your resources? So, because right now, you know, 
the fallout of COVID, the fallout of the chaos of in and out and what's the unpredictable and, you know, all of that stuff over the last two years is going to be a little bit longer term than I think people realize. So how can how can people kind of engage with your stuff so that they, you know, can support their kids and support their uh, their teens? Yeah. I do think the podcast is a good way to just get information and to hear what's going on in the counseling offices and hear other mental, because I'm pretty much holding the standard of interviewing mental health professionals. I think, you know, what makes me sad? Um, So I was basically, my title was a care pastor back in the day. It was women care and uh, in small groups. And like the reason John Townsend and Henry Cloud were so meaningful to me is because their stuff was like, that's what we were using, changes that heal, boundaries, all those things, um, safe people, because there's not care pastor conferences. Like you can go get trained as a youth minister. You can go to like a youth pastor, unless I don't know about them. Um, but there, there were only Celebrate Recovery trainings. There were those back in the day. And that was like it. And so there wasn't a way for me to go to anywhere and be with my people, so to speak. Um, I am speaking at the D6 family conference in April in Florida. And I think that impacts a lot of what care pastors do. And I'm, I, that's my, they are the publishers of the make up your mind book. And it's very weird. They don't publish a lot of stuff like that. They're really a family curriculum um, house, but um, we are so like-minded. They really wanted this partnership and I am loving working with them. I'm going to be equipping children's pastors at the children's pastors conference in January in Florida. Just, I'm getting to go to Disney twice in one year. That's a pretty good deal. Um <laughs> Um, um, on mental health, like yeah. managing the mental health within, I think children's ministers are family ministers, really. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, you know, they really are ministering to the family. They're the ones who touch those people. And so equipping them to, de- to prepare these parents to deal with their mental health challenges. And then on Instagram, I'm always putting out stuff there. I'm not, I, I mean, I, I feel kind of bad asking people to come find me on social media. It's the, the weirdest thing because like, ideally, I don't want a mom in the trenches on social media all the time. Like, that's not a great idea, but I do need to reach her and equip her. And that is a way I can give information out and she can find it quickly. So Instagram and Facebook are great ways to interact with me. That's where I'm the most active. Um, and then I honestly, within reason, reach out to me. Like I had a children's minister reach out to me last night and said, we've had a traumatic death in the family. I will, until I can't do it anymore, I will take 10 minutes out of my night and I'm starting to be able to copy and paste things I've said under ministers, you know, like, and, and I do have like a resource list on, um, communitycounselingassociates.com is the counseling center. So we have a link called resources and it's like my Amazon store or influencer list, but it's got like the books my therapists use and we use at the counseling center so they can find them on different topics and anyone can access that. So sometimes I will talk to the minister a little bit, like I'll voice message them on Facebook and then they'll voice message me back questions. Cause I don't have time to type it all out no. always. And then I can send them some links to some resources. So I am very happy. If, I mean, if you've had a suicide in your church or your area, especially involving kids, um, if there is something you need in that range, care pastor equipping wise, and I can put you in touch with other people who, like I was talking to you about other people that I know that are starting <laughs> to develop resources for the church as well. And, and that's what I love. I don't believe any of us become an expert and we do this alone. We work in community with other experts and we all work together. That's what the kingdom of God is all about using our gifts and our individual trainings and life experiences to try to help this, especially this next front, this generation is either going to be really, really, I think some of these kids are going to be amazingly resilient 
And some of them may be the most fragile kids we've ever seen as young Mm -hmm. adults. And so I think that we've got a hard call ahead of us post COVID. We've gone from mental health numbers of one in four to one in three kids, same as for adults, experiencing mental health issues in their lives. And so I think we have a huge call, but we also have a huge opportunity. What would you tell your past self? What would you, if you, the wisdom and the information and the experience that you have now, if you could flash back in time and whisper something or leave a note or a letter for yourself, you know, when you were starting out, what would you tell yourself? I said this on somebody else's podcast. I would, I would leave my note self a note saying there would be two aspects. I think I would leave them. One is none of this, none of these are threads in a tapestry and they don't make any sense, but wait till you see what God's weaving. Just don't worry about it. Cause he like the schools, I was so mad about the teaching. I couldn't have been a crisis counselor. I wouldn't really understand these kids worlds. If I hadn't lived in it, I was so mad. I took that detour. It wasn't a detour. It was in God's plan. Absolutely. The church split got me there. You know, like everything that's going to happen to you is it may, I don't think it was God's like, I'm not a Calvinist. I don't know if I should say that on here, but I'm not a Calvinist. So um, I don't think like this is God's a perfect plan. That's heaven. But I, I, God is going to use it all for good girl. You just trust him. You just, and I did that, but I did that. I think I love the way Andy Cobber talks about it, white knuckling through it all, like, and, and with so much devastation and pain in it sometimes. I mean, the church split was that night was like the first time I'd ever had a panic attack when they, I sat before the board and I thought we were talking about a mediation situation. And I found out that I either had to betray my boss or be fired, you know, um, definitely that, um, that, that God's going to use all that pain. And he has, and I knew he would, but it still, like, I still would like to avoid pain. I love fun. So if I could avoid pain, I would, I don't, I don't know many people who sign up. There are people who kind of like some of that, though. I am not one of those. Like if I could avoid pain, that'd be great. Um, cause I feel it deeply and, but I feel it deeply. And it's a great thing. Cause I can feel other people's pain as well. I have that spiritual gift of mercy. I would tell myself that. And then there's one other thing. And if you're a single woman out there in ministry, listening to me, um, I was a lot like Paul, you know, like if you can be single and serve the church, do it as long as you can. So you can anymore. (laughs) I really wanted to have kids and I wasted a lot of mental energy worried about that and, um, trying to fix something that wasn't even broken in me. Um, I am married, even though my husband has, that's a story in and of itself. He has, he went to Bible college after we got married and now has struggled with his faith the rest of our lives together. After I like did everything right and found the guy in church and, but now I'm with the guy who barely wants to read the Bible. <laughs> so it's hard and it's different. But um, but I'm also with the guy who said, I knew exactly who I married. I knew what you were called to. I, I You go and do what God has called you to do. I, I met you as this woman. And then you were broken for a while from this. And then we had kids. But I knew this was this would all be back. So um he, he doesn't always, he doesn't want to go with me a lot because he's an introvert who wants to be at home, which is kind of good in a way because I've got a kid like that too. But he is so supportive of me being who God made me to be. And so I would tell that younger self who thought, you know, because some of my baggage comes from like my dad didn't think any man would want a woman like me because I don't look like the typical Christian woman the church likes to brag about, you know, um, I am not quiet. I am not, I'm a leader. I'm not very submissive. Um, so my dad said some pretty painful things. Like if you don't change it, you may never get married. You may never, you know, have a man. And, um, that would be true for a man like my dad. I would be a horrible wife for him, but I am a great wife for my husband 
who um, totally is okay with like being on a kayak in the lake. He's not a very needy, emotional person and loves all the things I do and is so proud of the work and knows that God is in everything and, and even appreciates the fact that um, I probably shouldn't say all this on a podcast, but I'm about to. So my daughter was at this camp and they didn't tell us they were going to do it, but they basically pulled the girls and boys apart and kind of told them how like the boys would be the bosses of their home someday and the spiritual leaders. And I said, so I asked her, what did you think of that? And she said, well, I did tell my counselor later, you know, if that were true, that'd be horrible in our home because my mom is the one who's taught us the word of God and equipped me to really walk and follow him. So if she hadn't decided not to do it, unless my dad did it, we'd be in pretty bad shape. And so I just thought, wow, my kid is very wise for 14 years old um, and understands things that, um, you know, I, she, like for me, that would have pushed me back. It didn't even face her. And I'm grateful mm-hmm. that the next generation may not struggle in that way with um, mutual submission and mutual spiritual. I mean, I was raised like with Louie and other people, like you look at him and Shelly, you know, two people running side by side, super hard pursuing their call and the kingdom of God. And Reggie's wife mm-hmm. had a full degree from seminary herself and the same thing. And so I've had great role models of that dynamic. And um, I hope my husband someday will um, reclaim the fullness of his faith so that we could walk more side by side. We do marriage conferences together, but um, it's I do most of the teaching and he does a lot of the heckling, which is actually super <laughs> I mean, couples have taken our same seminar at our church, local church, twice when we were like newly married because they're like, oh, we just, we got to come back and see what Drew's going to do to you this time. Like, it's hysterical to watch. You're, you know, it is funny to watch a marriage counselor's husband in the room with her and just some of the interactions and stuff like that because we're very different. And it's 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 what most couples experience in their lives and their offices. So anyway, I, I hope I did a good job answering that question. I did. So I would tell you did a phenomenal yeah, job. Yeah. I would tell my younger self that, um, um, this, this weird, these weird threads are going to like make a great tapestry, just like Reggie said they would, you, you are going to be called and you are being equipped and you will impact the kingdom and all the setbacks will, God has restored everything. My husband broke up with me. We were dating at the time the church split. He has restored my center is bigger than the center that you know at the church that split everything he has restored and then he's multiplied Amen. thanks for listening i encourage you to put what you've heard today into action how are you going to be intentional about building a culture of care for both yourself and for others in your church and don't forget if you want to be reminded when an episode goes live make sure you subscribe Thanks for connecting and take care.